0: those of you who are regulars here, this goes without saying, but our normal course of teaching here on Sundays is to work through Bibles, uh, books of the Bible rather, uh, verse by verse. We call this expository or expositional preaching. We do that out of conviction because we believe that we must bow and submit to the Word of God And in so doing, we learn all the things that we need to learn. Over the course of many years, we are introduced to all the things that we need to see in the Scriptures and learn the things that we need to learn that we might worship and treasure God alone. That is our conviction here. However, because this is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, (coughs) we are taking, last week and this week, to remember the legacy of the Reformation and the implications it has for us as believers today. Last week, we took some time to do a biographical sketch of Martin Luther, who is by most considered to be the first catalyst for the Reformation. If we had more time and this was a seminary class, we would uh, pick that apart a little bit, but that's not what this is for. Today, we are going to go now beyond the man and the other men and women that were included in his company and talk about the doctrinal convictions, the rediscoveries, so to speak, of the Reformers, why they were so important, and why it's important for us today to understand them. As I said to you last week, and I want to just be very clear from the outset, this is not primarily... Uh, an attempt or an opportunity to help you know some more things. If this does not affect more than our heads, then we have not done a good job, a worthwhile job together today. I do want your minds to be changed. It has to begin there. We must be consistently renewed in the spirit of our minds, the Scriptures teach us. However, beyond that, our hearts, our affections must be affected, And our wills must be engaged. So this is about cognition, what we know and understand and believe. It's about our affections, what we treasure, how we feel. And it is about our volition, what we do with all of this. And so by God's grace, as we consider the doctrinal hallmarks, the cruxes, so to speak, of the Protestant Reformation and consider what they mean for us as a church today, all three components can be engaged, head, heart, and hands. So today we will talk about the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. I'll explain what that means. And I believe they hold out for us a legacy of grace and glory. So sola is Latin for the word alone. There were five doctrinal convictions that the Protestant Reformers held to Above all others. Now, these five things were not necessarily written down or systematized by Luther or Calvin, or for those of you who know a little bit more about the Reformation, by Zwingli or others. But they were implicit in the things that they taught and the things that they wrote. And as you consider and examine what they taught and what they wrote, these are the five things basically that you can distill, that they most carefully put before their people and upheld. I've already used the word rediscovery with you today. As we mentioned last week, the first several centuries of the church were exciting, cataclysmic, really, for the known world. And because, at least for the first few centuries, the church was disregarded, even hated, The gospel flourished. We won't take time to chase that rabbit trail today, but it is interesting that when the church is opposed and under the most severe of persecution, it tends to thrive the most. Comfort in so many ways is the greatest pitfall of the church. So for the first few centuries, under opposition, the church thrived living under the teaching of the apostles and those who came after them, and listening to the word of God and ordering their churches and their lives after it. But over time, after the church became the imperial religion, after Christianity became the religion of the empire, the Roman Empire, there were still a few hundred years or maybe a couple hundred years where the church remained in solidarity and doctrinal purity for the most part. But somewhere around the 6th century or so, up until the time of the Protestant Reformation in the early 16th century, the church fell into basic darkness where the gospel, to use my word from last week, was essentially eclipsed. And finding favor with God became an effort of seeking one's own salvation, establishing one's own merit, finding favor with God by what you did. And though there were early catalysts before Luther, when Luther came along, the two essential things that he taught above all others is that the Scriptures were sufficient for salvation alone and that we are justified on the basis of the grace of Jesus as we exercise faith alone. These were the doctrinal hallmarks of the Reformation and in many ways were rediscoveries by the grace of God that once again people could find the pure and true gospel, embrace it, and celebrate it together. And now, after 500 years, by God's grace, we are still holding on to these doctrines. The church is always under great threat. For as Christianity became the religion of the empire and fell into disrepair and to lack of orthodoxy, we face the same temptation today. And though initially our nation may have been founded by a few at least who had convictions to celebrate a pure and unadulterated gospel that is not primarily the main course of our country, and there is a correspondence between the growth and expansion of the power and wealth and comfort of our country and doctrinal disrepair. That is to say, once again in our generation, the gospel is in danger of being eclipsed. A commitment to the word of God alone, as sufficient for faith and salvation, is in danger of being disregarded and perhaps even discarded altogether. I am not a doomsday guy. But what will it be like in a few decades when our children are leading these churches like ours? Will it be that a pure gospel is still even preached? Will it be that the word of God is still embraced as authoritative and inerrant and sufficient for faith and practice? That will only be the case if we continue to hold tightly with gratitude and conviction to these doctrines that the Reformers rediscovered and have left for us today. So we are recipients recipients of a legacy of grace and glory. May we learn now today and may we embrace these truths for the glory of God and for our mutual joy. So let's launch into this together. The first sola is what we call Sola gratia, translated into English. This means that we are justified by grace alone. So, sola gratia is grace alone. We are justified by grace alone. You have to understand that a thousand years or so from the early church councils after the apostles until the time of Luther... There had grown the notion that grace was necessary for salvation. Roman Catholic theology did not teach that grace was not necessary for salvation. As you evangelize a Roman Catholic today, if they know what they're talking about, if you say to them, you don't believe that grace is necessary for salvation, they will look at you and they will be right and they will tell you that you are wrong. Roman Catholic theology does believe that grace is necessary for salvation. But they mean something different by that than the reformers taught and what we believe today. Let's turn together to Romans chapter 8 verses 28 through 30. We're going to turn around a little bit together today, which we don't typically do. I tend to park in one passage at a time, but today we're going to turn around a little bit, so Get your fingers limber. Verses that most of you are well familiar with. Verse 28, the Apostle Paul says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This means from predestination, our calling to salvation, until glorification, the finality of our salvation, where are actually with God in the eternal state. That it's all a gift of grace. It is not something that we contribute to. Turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. What was our condition prior to God saving us? We were children of the devil and we were under condemnation and we would have stayed there. Let's read on, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, dead in our trespasses, made us alive together, he did this, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's a sense to which our salvation is already finished. In some sense, we are already united with the Son in the heavenly places. That's mind boggling. Verse 7 So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul here in Ephesians 2, Romans 8, and lots of other places, is very clear as to the condition of humanity. We are not just damaged. We are not just sort of mildly estranged or separated from God. According to the Scriptures, we are dead in trespasses and sins is what god told adam and eve would happen if they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil they would die now organically their hearts didn't stop beating their brain synapses kept firing their lungs kept exchanging oxygen but but they died in a sense though organically they would die spiritually they died They were separated from God. According to Paul in the book of Romans, they were the enemies of God immediately. But like our first parents, there was a promise of redemption given. The grace that would come through the sacrifice of another. Adam and Eve were promised that a redeemer would come to crush the evil one who held the world under his sway that is exactly what happened when Christ Jesus came. He died on the cross, was raised from the dead. And as we will learn in just a moment in regard to faith, if we will trust Him and Him alone exclusively, this grace will be applied to us, we who were dead. But what I want to key in on in this first sola, sola gratia, is that alone God deals with our condition. Roman Catholicism taught in Luther's day and still to this day that grace is necessary for salvation, but we must work really hard. So things like baptism at infancy will wash away original sin, coming to the table consistently. And in more conservative Roman Catholicism, some people go to Mass every day in the central feature of mass is that you partake of the table every day and therein justification is re-adhered to you. It is infused once again. It It is kept or maintained. You must go to confession consistently, confessing your sins to the priest and he will give you things that you should say and do to make penance with God. At the end of life, I'm skipping a few, but at the end of life, last rites are read over you so that perhaps if grace is spoken over you once again, an act of a work, your time in purgatory or your time of purification might be shortened or lessened. Sins are divided up between mortal and venial sins. The mortal ones will send you to hell, the venial ones, the little Peccadillos, as they are sometimes called, are the ones that are pretty bad, but not horribly bad. And in so many ways, Roman Catholicism became a religion of trying to deal with sin, hoping in grace, but doing a lot to deal with it on your own. As we talked about last week, when Luther came into the monastery, this is what crushed him. He made a vow that he would become a priest if God would save him from a lightning storm in 1505, and God did, and he kept his word. But each day of Luther's life, he could find no peace. Despite taking the Mass daily and praying and reading the Bible as best he could and the words of the Pope and his bishops, staying up in the cold at night, I said to you last week that sometimes Luther would do this in such cold conditions that frost would form on his body. Some monks in his day actually had a little whip. They would whip themselves into submission trying to beat their bodies down. There was a recognition that they were horribly sinful. It is said that when Luther performed his first Mass, where he wasn't just taking it, but dispensing it, that he trembled in such fear because he thought God would strike him dead on the spot. As Luther discovered that we are justified on the basis of grace, and not by our own efforts, not by whipping ourselves, or staying up late at night, or confessing our sins to another, or hoping in sacraments, or doing good works, giving to the poor, that there's no way in our self-righteousness that we can deal with our sin problem. But that before the foundation of the world, God chose to take some of these rebellious sinners, enemies, and instead of condemning them, sending his son to take their condemnation. And if they will trust him, placing their faith in him and him alone, They can be legally pardoned, justified. How can our deep and utter rebellious sinfulness be dealt with? Grace and grace alone. We would never have sought it. We never could have earned it. When it's all said and done, it will not be as though our sins are weighed against our righteousnesses. Christianity exclusively holds out the fact that even one sin condemns us. But the truth of the matter is, and we know this not only from the teaching of the Word, but by our own experience that we sin thousands, yes, millions of times. And we cannot deal with this. How might we be pardoned? We might be pardoned on the basis of grace and grace alone. Moving on, the second doctrinal conviction of the Reformation is sola fide, or faith alone. We are justified by grace alone on the basis of faith alone. Now once again, in Luther's day and in our day, a Roman Catholic who knows what they are talking about believes that faith is necessary for salvation you're paying attention still, you may then ask the question, how does that differ from what we believe the Bible teaches? We believe that faith is not only necessary for salvation, it is effective for salvation, it is sufficient for salvation. In other words, God justifies us through grace, by faith, alone. Nothing that we do. Is grace necessary for salvation? Is faith necessary for salvation? Yes. But it's more than being necessary. It is sufficient. Let's look together into Romans chapters 3 and 4. We read from Romans chapter 3 last week, but as a reminder in verses 9 to 20, we are reminded of our great and utter sinfulness. There is, there is great separation between us and God, a, a vast chasm that we could never leap across. We, we could never bridge with all of our efforts. And because of our sinfulness, verse 19, we are accountable to God. by faith. And this is not just something that Paul made up, some new gospel. That is why in chapter 4, Paul says that Abraham was justified by faith. The father of the people of Israel is the model of how one is justified. Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. This means that we might be saved by grace, but this grace may only be received. It cannot be earned. And as we saw in Ephesians chapter 2 just a few moments ago, even the faith itself is a gift. The Spirit regenerates and grants life and we believe the gospel. As I said to you last week, Luther called this the article or doctrine upon which the church rises or falls. And that is why in every generation, the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone is constantly under attack. We don't have to scratch ourselves very hard to get self-righteous blood. It courses through our veins, yours and mine. This is why we like legalism. It's why we like rules. And even though a lot of us have a little bit of a rebellious streak in us, we like to be told what to do. Because when we have a code, when we have man-made laws... And we're able to achieve some measure of success in keeping those laws, we feel pretty good about ourselves. Now, if we really consider the holiness of God like Luther did, we will be overcome and overwhelmed. But that's not typically what we do. Typically, what we do is we just measure ourselves against people around us. I might not be the best, but I'm better than you. That disease of self-righteousness courses through our veins. The problem, of course, according to Romans chapters 3 and 4 and elsewhere, is that we cannot deal with this on our own. This must be dealt with by God. And so He's granted us grace. The opportunity of receiving the good news, the gospel. But we cannot earn this. We cannot keep it. We cannot maintain it. We are justified by grace on the basis of faith alone. So is faith necessary for salvation? Most of Christendom believes that. The Scriptures go further. Faith is not just necessary for salvation. It is sufficient for salvation. It is not what you do. It is what Christ has done. And if you will trust this, if you will believe this, you may be saved. It is more than just knowing doctrine. It is more than just believing certain things about the gospel. The scriptures teach that even the demons believe things about the gospel. They know them to be true. There's a difference between knowing and trusting. Believing something to be true is different than staking your claim on it. That's what justification by grace through faith alone means. You're banking everything on the grace provided to you by God through Christ. Look with me, please, in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. The beloved apostle teaches us in these two verses in the introduction to his gospel. But to all who did receive him... Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Again, totally an act of grace, and yet we must believe, we must receive. And for all those who receive the grace given to us in Jesus, what will be true of them, what may be said about them, they will become the children of God an eternal identity that cannot be taken away we are justified by grace alone on the basis of faith alone trusting in the righteousness of christ alone this third sola solus christus sometimes you will see it written solo christo we are justified by grace alone on the basis of faith alone trusting in the righteousness of christ alone turn with me please to colossians chapter one verses 15 through 20. Who is Jesus? These six verses tell us He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Who is He? He's God, He is the King of the universe. All glory should flow to him. Verse 18, he's more than just God. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is not just a distant God who judges us. He is an imminent God who has saved us the Father was pleased to send Him as the firstborn of creation to this earth, that sinful humanity might be reconciled to Him. Look with me, please, in John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus' response to doubting Thomas, we find in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, we will soon get in our teaching through the book of Acts, the apostles teach a similar thought. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you were to poll most Christians, and I mean that term as broadly as I can mean it, and ask them how people are saved, most people would say that we are saved on the basis of grace and doing good things. If you were to furthermore ask the question, Can people be saved if they've never heard of Christ? A difficult question to be sure. Most Christians, and again I mean that term in those broad sense, would say, well, of course. But according to Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, and John 14 and Acts chapter 4, Jesus is the exclusive way back to God. Him and Him alone. This means that well-meaning Muslims who are trusting in the pillars of Islam, moral and faithful though they may be, will not be saved. This means that well-meaning Christians who know some things about Jesus but are trusting in their own righteousness, seeking to establish their own righteousness paying God off, buying God off by their unrighteousness, they are without hope as well. What is the personification of grace, sola gratia? It's solus Christus. The grace that was given to us is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. The faith that we have is in Jesus and Jesus alone. I have a friend that was a longtime committed evangelical. In other words, he believed that we are saved on the basis of grace through faith alone. But over time and through his own reading, he was led astray and is now a committed Roman Catholic and believes that we are saved by grace and faith but also by works. He and I had a lot of Relatively peaceful but difficult conversations. One of the things that he criticized me and our church for is that we were believing in faith, that faith saves us. And what I continued to say to him is that we are not trusting in faith as an object, how much we believe, how hard we believe. We are trusting objectively in a person and what he has done. In Christ. Which means that we don't believe that justification alone is what saves us. Jesus saves us. We have an objective faith. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. So we must be careful that the doctrine is not what saves us. Jesus is who saves us. He is the grace that has been given to us. There are implications for this in our worship. One of the great things that arose out of the Protestant Reformation is what we call the priesthood of all believers. This means that you don't have to go to a priest to confess your sins and have salvation granted to you once again. As you look, and I've talked about this I think even last week, as you look sometimes at catechisms of the Roman Catholic Church, they have pictures that teach things. Some of you are visual learners. One of the well-known visuals in the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church is Jesus is in heaven, and he has blood pouring from his nail-scarred hands. Underneath him is Mary, and Mary has her hands outheld, and she is dispensing the blood all over the earth. The saints help her with that. And then the blood then goes down to another layer of dispenser, like the Pope and the Cardinals and the Bishops and the Priests. And eventually it trickles down to the laity, most everybody else. The Reformation taught that we have direct access to God through Christ. And as the book of Hebrews says, he ever lives to make intercession for us we have a great high priest who does this daily he has gone inside the veil and made atonement once and for all and now we have access to god once again the veil has been torn as it was on the day of jesus crucifixion and the separation between god and man has been dealt with because of christ This means that you don't have to come to an elder or to a religious figure, but you can go to Jesus alone. No one needs to dispense his grace to you. It is for you. You have direct access to him and to the Father. And so we are justified by grace alone on the basis of faith alone, trusting in the righteousness of Christ alone as revealed in the scriptures alone. John Wycliffe, who predated Luther by a little over 100 years, was called the morning star of the Reformation, like the first star you see at night, and you can barely see it before it becomes really dark and you can see the really bright stars. One of the things that Wycliffe taught and believed with all his heart is that, in his words, every plowboy should have the Word of God in his hands. That means it's not just the clergy, but everybody, not just royalty, but all, should have access to the Word of God. It was true in Wycliffe's day and in Luther's day that if you saw a Bible, it was a large tome and it was chained to the pulpit. You couldn't have it. And even if you could have it, you couldn't read it, because the laity most often could not read Latin. Latin. But through Wycliffe and Luther and others, eventually the Bible was translated into the vernacular, into German and French and English and other languages, so that the gospel could be read on the pages of the Scriptures. Roman Catholic Church believes the Bible is important. But alongside it is what we call the magisterium, the official teaching of the pope and the bishops through the centuries and the magisterium holds equal weight with the bible in fact in so many ways the magisterium the teaching of the church helps interpret the bible for the people in other words even if you could have access to a copy of the bible and even if you could read latin you probably would misinterpret it because after all you were sinful and you needed grace to be conferred to you through channels Reformers rediscovered the essential nature of the Bible and the Bible alone as essential and sufficient for faith and practice. Those of us who've been Christians a long time have probably had countless copies of the Scripture. I'm not going to guilt you here. That's not how I do things. But isn't it true that at least at intervals in our life, though we might have 5, 10, 20 copies of Scripture, And most of us don't even use a copy of Scripture anymore. We just access it on our device. How often we disregard it. How precious it was for these early Christians, led by the Reformers, to rediscover the Word of God in their own language. Brothers and sisters, let us be careful to not grow bored with it, to not take it for granted, but to listen to it. To bow to it. Not because we worship it, but because it reveals he who we should worship. And it reveals to us how we can once again worship the gospel. Because the story of the Bible is one story. It is the story of redemption. God redeeming his people through Christ alone. And that is why we teach it here. One of the interesting things that happened during the Reformation is the architecture of churches changed. They became more simple. Less money was spent on them. There weren't stations that you would go to in various parts of the church and bow down and pray and worship. The biggest architectural change that happened to church is that the altar got moved to the side and the pulpit was put in the center. It was the opposite before that. Because the center of Roman Catholic worship is the Mass. The sermon or homily doesn't really matter that much. It's taking of the body and blood of Christ once again so that justification might be retained and maintained. Because the Reformers taught the Bible, and the Bible teaches, justification is a one-time event, not on the basis of what we have done, but placing our faith in Jesus and what He has done. It is necessary for us to hear from the Word all the time. And so the pulpit became the center of, of these churches, the physical buildings. As I was finishing seminary, there was an opportunity for Whitney and I to move to Germany and pastor in a church in Heidelberg, which is in southwestern Germany, in many ways the seat of the Reformation under Luther's influence. And there's a beautiful building there. It was interesting to learn, though, that that building changed hands again and again and again, from Roman Catholicism into Protestantism. And this building became unimportant in many senses, but what was taught there is what was important. The church is not a building. church is the people. But the people are formed by the Word of God and are maintained by the Word of God, held together by the Word of God. And that's why we teach it here. That's why we try to avoid clever five-week series on your money or your marriage, Because we believe that if we will teach verse by verse through the Bible, we'll deal with your marriage. And we'll deal with your money. And we'll deal with your anxiety. And we'll deal with your struggles. And we will continue once again over and over to point you back to Jesus. I was told this week by a well-meaning brother that I tend to say a lot of the same things over and over. But he said it with affection. He wasn't criticizing me. He was encouraging me to continue to do it. In many ways that's true. We teach through the Bible verse by verse and we will see all kinds of new things all over the place. These 66 books hold a lot. But there's one central message. And as we teach the Bible verse by verse we are reminded that God is great, we are sinful, and Jesus is gracious. That's the message of the Bible over and over. And Without it, you and I, because the sin, the disease of self-righteousness courses through our veins. Because as one of the great reformers, Calvin, said, our hearts are like idol factories that churn out idols three shifts a day, 365. The only way to deal with our tendency toward incessant idolatry and toward the coursing disease of self-righteousness that flows through all of us, we must hear from the word of God. Our sin must be exposed. We must behold the greatness of God and once again cling to the truth that we are saved by grace found in Jesus, the gracious Savior alone. That's why we come back together. That's why the pulpit is central. We are justified by grace alone, on the basis of faith alone, trusting in the righteousness of Christ alone as revealed in the Scriptures alone. Turn with me, please, to 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. Once again, the Apostle Paul teaches us, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. How are we made mature? Through the Word and the Word alone. And then please, 1 Peter chapter 1. Apostle Peter teaches us in verses 22-25, through Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. How do we know about the grace that is found in Jesus alone? And how do we place our faith in him alone? We trust the Bible alone as God's revealed word. So now our last phrase, we are justified by grace alone on the basis of faith alone, trusting in the righteousness of Christ alone, as revealed solo scriptura in the scriptures alone, now soli Deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. Why has God sent his son as the fountain of grace, whom we can trust, revealed in the scriptures? Why has he done this? That his glorious grace might be praised. Look with me, please, in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah gets a vision of God in Isaiah 6, as he will be commissioned to go preach to the people. And the year that King Uzziah died, he records, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. We use terms, phrases like we must glorify God or the glory of God a lot, but I think if most of us were to try to define it, we would struggle. What is the glory of God? God's glory is his holiness on display, which then begs the question, of course, what is his holiness? It is all of his perfections. To say that God is holy means that He is set apart. He is unique. There is none like Him. And all of His attributes, His love and His faithfulness and His wisdom and His power, He is holy. What is His glory? It is His holiness on display. What do the hosts of heaven do? They glorify Him. They praise the sum of His perfect attributes. Turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. The holy, glorious God, eternal God, the unchangeable I Am, Yahweh in Isaiah 6. According to John's gospel, that is Jesus just as much as it is the Father. Why has the Father sent the Son? That their glorious grace might be praised. Why did they create a world that they knew would fall into sin? To display their glorious grace. So, we are saved, we are justified by grace alone, on the basis of faith alone, trusting in the righteousness of Christ alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. That is why he saved us. Yes, he saved us because he loves us. We are loved far more than we can imagine. Zephaniah the prophet teaches us that God sings over us. That is mind-boggling. How could God sing over his enemies? But he does because we are now his children that He has done this, that we might praise the sum of His attributes, His glory. That's why we exist as a church, that His glorious great might be praised and then revealed to others that He might be praised more. God's glory is inherent. He can't become more glorious when we praise Him. But we are exposed to His glory, He is praised, and then we are satisfied. Adam and Eve believed the lie that they could be satisfied apart from God. It was a wicked lie. And Jesus came to redeem us from this lie. That we will be most satisfied as the Reformers taught and those who came after them when God is glorified. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Across in that church that I mentioned in Heidelberg, Germany, there is a hotel and emblazoned on the second story of the outside of the hotel in gold lettering is the phrase Soli Deo Gloria. It was the response of the reformers and even shopkeepers, hotel keepers in the day that the rediscovery of grace and faith, Jesus and the scriptures was to result in God being praised. What happens when we need grace and need faith and need Jesus and need the scriptures but, but they're not exclusively sufficient they're necessary but not sufficient what happens man gets praised what happens when grace is sufficient and faith is sufficient and Jesus alone is trusted and scripture alone leads us to salvation what happens then God is glorified And if nothing else, the Protestant Reformation was a rediscovery that man-made religion leads to man being praised, that the gospel of Jesus Christ leads to God being praised, and that is why we exist as a church. So what? What does this mean for us today? First, we must know, embrace, meditate upon, and teach the Bible and its message of redemption to saints and sinners. That's why we teach the Bible over and over. And it's why we proclaim it to those who have not yet believed. As children of the Reformation, five centuries onward, let us not take the Bible for granted. For in it we find Christ. In it we find His good news. In it we see our condition. And in it we find that we might once again be rescued and reconciled to God. So, let us know it let us embrace it let us meditate upon it and let us teach it we cannot take it for granted teach it to your children teach it to your friends and embrace it yourself secondly we must fight our inevitable tendency toward self righteousness our identity is in jesus christ alone believe this brothers and sisters just like me self righteousness courses through your veins and it's a pernicious and evil and wicked disease It shows up when you're defensive. It shows up when you are deceitful. It shows up whenever you find satisfaction in things other than God. Just admit it's true. Recognize you will struggle with it. Fight it. Invite others into the battle to identify and fight it. And remember that you are in Christ Jesus and He is your identity alone. This allows you to be honest when you sin. It allows you to not hide. It allows you to fight your idols. It allows you to recognize when you find identity in anything else. If the Reformation holds out anything to us, it is the hope that we cannot earn salvation. That's good news because it's true. Jesus has, and if we will trust Him and Him alone, we might find hope and peace. And lastly, we must measure our lives in light of the glory of God. In Hebrew, the word that is translated glory originally meant weightiness. The sum of God's holy perfections is weighty. Therefore, everything that we do, everything we think, everything that we do with our hands, everything we speak from our lips must be measured in light of the glory of God. He's watching, and He's for us if we have trusted Christ. But every decision must be measured against the weightiness of who He is. That is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. That means that nothing is out of bounds. Everything must be measured against who He is. We belong to Him. May we lead our lives that His glorious grace might be known and praised. Now, Lord.